I think they hate me at the back. There's my feedback. Thank you for that. Um, I love that last song. Isn't that an amazing song? These guys did an amazing job. They give them a hand. Appreciate it, guys. You can clap, clap louder than that. Come on, guys. Seriously. There you go. If you're, uh, if you're just joining us just today, um, we have been in the book of Acts. And I'll tell you what um, the book of Acts is about. If you're new to the Bible at all, um, you may not know like what we're talking about when you, when you come in this room. I've actually heard people say things to me like, you know, you start talking about a story and it's like, I have no idea where you're even beginning, like where the beginning point of the story is. So I'll back up just a little bit. Um, if you know the Bible at all, you'll know that the New Testament, of course, is, was written after Christ. Old Testament is before Christ. New Testament, first four books are the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those detail the accounts of Christ, the stories of Christ, his miracles, um, his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, which he did for us on our behalf. And after the Gospels, we have the book of Acts, which is also written by one of the guys who wrote one of the Gospels, Luke. Luke was a a physician. Luke was a guy who uh, interviewed lots of people, uh, wanted to make sure he was accurate in what he was writing to the church. And so he did lots and lots of research, much like a journalist would do in today's modern day. And he composed two books, the book of Luke, but also the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts details the story of the church. This is basically what happened after Christ ascended. And so the first part of the church is going great. Everyone's uh, growing. The church is growing in numbers. The church went from 120 people to 3,000 people in one sermon. Then from there it went from 3,000 people to 5,000 people after one sermon. So people are getting healed physically and spiritually. The church is growing like crazy. Things are just going really, really, really well. And then Acts chapter 5, last week, uh, people start dying. And uh, we looked at Ananias and Sapphira last week where these are the first two people um, that committed the sin of hypocrisy in the church. And God literally just struck them dead on the spot. Which sounds crazy, I know. But it's more crazy that he doesn't ever do that at all today. Okay? You and I, as we're walking through life, we sin all the time. God will be perfectly just to do the exact same thing to us. But he does not do it because of his grace and his mercy. And the one time in history that we know of where he does this thing with this couple uh, in Acts chapter 5... It looks crazy because in contrast to his grace that we see 24-7 the rest of the time, it does look pretty insane. And so now we're in Acts chapter 6, and uh, actually Acts chapter 6 through 8, we're just going to look at a few verses today. And uh, we're looking at the first martyr. This is the first person to ever give his life up physically for Christ. It's ironic that next week is Easter because it's looking at how Christ gave his life for us. And today we're looking at how someone gave his life for Christ. So look at uh, Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 8. And we'll do some discussion in a few moments. We'll look at Acts chapter 6, verse 8, starting off. And here's what it says, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. 
So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, which is the religious court. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen is performing miracles. He's the only guy that we know of besides the apostles directly with Jesus that perform miracles during this time. Now, people see something different about Stephen. That it, says, it says here in the first verse, in verse 8, that he's a man full of grace and power. This means that Stephen had a good reputation among the early church. It means that people knew him as a man that was gracious, as a man that was full of God's mercy, as a man that had been transformed by the power of the gospel. He was known as a man full of grace. This raises the question for us, what is our reputation among other people? Stephen had a good reputation. Stephen was known as a man full of grace. If that's the word that people thought of when they thought of Stephen, the question is, what word would people associate with you if we could take a survey? That's a scary thought, isn't it? If we could survey your school, survey your friends, what one word would they use to describe you? What is your reputation among the people that you know in your circle? It's scary to think of what that word might be, but for Stephen, it was the the man full of grace. He was known as a man that was full of God's mercy. When I was in high school, uh, I would say that if, if you polled my friends, what word they think of when it comes to me, I'm sad to say that I think it would probably be the word judgment. I was one of those kids that was kind of raised in the church, and I became a Christian at an early at an early age. And so I knew the Bible, I knew the gospel. But as you probably feel the same way that I felt, over time, you start to feel like that you become judgmental towards other people. You start to feel like that you're better than. Because you've, you've grown up in the church, you start to see yourself as, okay, I've, I've earned this that God's given me. I have, um, you, you forget about the concept of grace. You understand the idea of grace, but you stop living out grace. And so that's kind of how I was. I was sort of cold to people. I was one of those people that would speak the truth to you, but I wouldn't really love you in saying that. And so if people could associate one word with me, it probably would have been the word judgment. And throughout my teenage years and even in the college, God began to convict me of this truth about myself, that, that I'm a pretty judgmental person. And I struggle with it today. How many of you guys were in the main uh, service today? A few of you were there. You saw the cardboard testimonies at the end. I think that, that my sign would have read judgment. And I hope that today I could flip it over and it would say grace. I I would hope that people feel that God's changed me to where I exemplify the kind of grace that God has shown me. That's my hope and my prayer. But it's a a process. It's it's God growing me through all that. And so I fail that just to let you know that whenever I'm up here on the stage and I am yelling at you from God's word and, and saying some hard things... 
My hope is that you hear the grace in that. My, my hope is that you don't feel judged by me. My hope is that you feel like I'm trying to introduce you to Jesus and his grace. And I say hard things because I love you. That sounds like a parental statement I know, right? Your parents always say, I'm doing this because I love you, right? But that really is what my motivation needs to be. And I'll admit, I struggle with sin in this area. The sin of judgment. I struggle personally where if I know a kid's messing up, it's like part of me goes, let me tell him. I'll tell him what the truth is. You know, it's like, right? But that comes from a place of, of judgment. Stephen was the exact opposite. He was a man known as full, a man full of grace. Full of God's grace and mercy. So Stephen's full of grace, but these men accusing him were not full of grace. And so some men begin to oppose him to his face. They can't win that battle, so they then decide, we're going to go hire false witnesses to testify against him in front of the Sanhedrin, the religious court, so that we can get this guy convicted and hopefully put to death. And so they, go to, they actually go and, and persuade some men to falsely accuse him in this religious court. And the question might be, what is he being accused of? He's being accused of the sin of blasphemy. Now what I mean by that is... He is, is, he's being accused of speaking against Moses or the law and speaking against the temple, which is a place that God was seen to dwell in the temple. Now, this was a big deal back in that day. If you, if you spoke against the law, it was pretty much punishable by death. If you spoke against the temple, same penalty. Now, what Stephen probably was doing was referring to back when Jesus said the words in the Gospels. He said something like, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, what he meant by that was himself, because he was God. He was the full dwelling of God. So he was saying, I'm going to die, basically. I'm going to raise myself up in three days. And so it was kind of a vague statement, but the Sanhedrin, the religious court, took it as an offense, saying that, okay, he's going to destroy this temple. That's sacrament. That's blasphemy. And so Stephen is saying the same things that Jesus said, and now he's being accused of blasphemy for it. So after Stephen uh, is accused, the high priest then asks him, is all this true? And Stephen goes into this long speech. I'm not going to read the entire speech because it's like 50 verses. And uh, he gives a speech basically showing how Israel, throughout the course of their history, has rejected everyone God has sent them. So throughout the entire course of, of Israel's history, God would send a prophet. They'd kill him. God would send a prophet. They would stone him. God would send a prophet. They would reject him. So throughout their entire history, they just rejected messenger after messenger after messenger. The, ones, the very ones that God has sent to them. And so once Stephen says all these things, accusing these people of, you are just like your fathers, now you're rejecting the gospel in its entirety. You've murdered Jesus. You're murdering his followers now. You're about to. And so he says these words in verse, skip ahead to Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Here's what he says. Acts 7, verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. That's a great way to start off a speech. You are just like your fathers. 
You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Go ahead and discuss questions one through three at your tables. Okay, I want to talk about what this word, stiff-necked, means, because it's an interesting word. It's not the word that we would typically use when we're saying someone's being stubborn. Like, you would never say to your friend, you're being, stop being so stiff-necked, right? You'd be like, quit being a pain in the rear end, right? And so, this word stiff-necked, here's what it means. It basically is meaning that, it means stubborn, but it also means, has this very vivid imagery of someone who's unwilling to bow to the truth. Someone who, somebody who's unwilling to submit their life to the truth. They're unwilling to bow their neck to God. And so Stephen calls them stiff-necked. It also uh, can mean something a little bit more than that, too. It can also mean someone who is unable to turn their head to see the truth. Now, uh, I try to go to the gym fairly regularly and there are some times when I'm like doing a certain exercise this shows how old I am uh, and I'll be like I'll be like turning my head slightly I'm doing like lat pull downs you know yes please start the music please yes and uh, I'm going to do like P90X right up on the stage right now okay and uh, and so if you turn your head slightly while you're working out sometimes you can tweak your neck to the point where at my age it's like that for days and you literally are walking around like a freak, going like you're like walking around like this, okay? And you can't turn your head, only your body. So someone, you're walking this way, and someone says, "Hey, Dave," and you're like, "What?" And you literally can't move. Like your your neck's just immobilized. And so you're at a stoplight, and you're trying to see if, on, if, if there's oncoming traffic, and you're just like, I can't turn my head, so let's just pray really hard and go through the intersection. And you literally, it's like you cannot function, okay? And what happens, it's really strange, what happens is you find your vision kind of narrowed because you're, not, you're used to walking around going like this, like looking around and just seeing what's around you. But you're stuck in this very immobilized state, staring straight ahead all the time, and it, it actually hurts your vision because you can't turn your head the way you're supposed to turn your head. And so this is also what this word can mean. This word can mean someone who literally can't turn and see the truth. Their vision is limited. 
because of their own sin and the fact that they will not bow their neck to God and submit to His truth. This is a very vivid picture of what these people were like. Stephen actually says that they resist the Holy Spirit. Everyone got sent, they rejected. You guys know Jeremiah who wrote a book in your Bible? He's called the Weeping Prophet for a reason, because no one ever listened to him. He was sent by God to preach to people, and they completely rejected him and his message, and it did not end well, because many think that his life ended by getting stoned. How's that for your life? Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Many think that his life ended with him being sawed in two while he was still alive. Can you imagine you were a prophet, God's anointed you as a prophet to Israel, and you're sent to these people and God says, hey, go tell them the truth. And you go and you preach your heart out. You go and present truth and you say, repent, God's going to kill you. And they're like, no, we're going to kill you. And they actually end up killing Isaiah. So God has sent prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, and they stone them, they kill them, they reject them, they don't listen to them. They killed those that came before Jesus. They killed Jesus, God himself. Now they're about to kill those that come after Jesus. Which, as a side note, let's just moral of the story here. If, if you want to kill the person who's telling you truth, then you probably need to hear what they have to say anyway, right? If, if you want to murder the person that you're arguing with, then you're probably in the wrong. That's just moral of the story, okay? You can imagine Stephen's accusers huddling up, saying things like, okay, he's saying we're evil. We're not evil. What are we going to do? Let's kill him. Right? Like, it just doesn't fit. Like, right, if, if you're trying to kill the person speaking truth to you, then chances are you're probably in the wrong. Right? And you might need to hear what it is they have to say. If murder is your knee-jerk reaction to someone, then you're probably in a really, really bad, dark place and need to hear the truth they're speaking to you. And so it's true that people do not like hearing truth about themselves. If you go and confront someone about some issue that they have, it's rare that they say thank you, right? They rarely sit there and go, you know what, thank you so much for saying that I'm a complete jerk and an idiot. You are so right, and I have been living this way for, in these lives for so long. And I just thank you so much for revealing the truth to me. You're just the best friend ever. That never happens. It rarely happens. And so people rarely say thank you when you speak the truth to them. And um, I can relate to this personally. Uh, I have an amazing wife, and, but she is someone that will speak the truth to me when I need to hear it. And uh, early in our engagement process, um, there were a few times where she said, Hey, um, I need to have a talk with you. And I'm like, What about? Like the wedding? Like, no, not the wedding. We need to have a discussion. And I'm going, Oh, great. 
And so I'd go to her apartment, we'd have this sit-down discussion, and, and there'd be like this lump in my throat of like, what's this going to be about, right? And normally it was just very like, and she had really good points, and she was totally right on. My wife is a counselor, so I can't get away with anything, okay? I mean, she, she reads me like a book. She knows me better than I know myself. Like, she'll be like, no, I can tell that you were kind of thinking this. And I'm like, I wasn't thinking that at all. What are you talking about? And she's like, no, I think you were. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, I was. And uh, that's just how she's, she's very intuitive, very discerning. And so, but when she speaks the truth to me, it is very difficult to hear. There's this lump you get in your throat. You feel like all tight. You can't speak. You just feel like... I don't like being confronted with the truth about myself. I don't like it. And that's where every single one of us are. We, we don't like hearing someone else speak truth to you. And so the question I have for us today is, is this you? Are you someone who is resisting the Holy Spirit even right now? Are you someone who is always resistant to truth? There are two kinds of people in the world, those who receive truth and those who Reject it. There is no in between. And to think that you can live in between those two things, to not make a decision about truth, is to make a decision. And so the question is, which one are you? Someone that resists truth or someone that receives truth? How do you respond to truth? What emotion do you find welling up inside of you when you hear someone speak truth from the Word of God? Is it conviction or is it anger? Because those are two very different things. Is it conviction or is it anger? If hearing truth leads to anger, the chances are you need to hear it. If hearing truth leads to you getting mad, then chances are you need to hear it. I would bet there are people in this room, you've been coming here for years. And you you are still resisting the Holy Spirit. You are still resistant to the truth about the gospel. You've not chosen to submit your life to Christ and surrender your life to Christ. And so the question is, do you resist the Holy Spirit in the same way that these men did that were stoning Stephen? So in this moment, while Stephen is speaking, this is a really funny scene. While, While Stephen is is speaking these words of conviction to these men, the text says that they plug their ears. Alright? Just like this. They gnash their teeth at him, and they run at him. Okay? So picture this. These men get mad, and they do this. Ah! Alright? Like, how old are we? Okay, seriously. How old are we? My son does this. If, if I tell him to do something and he doesn't want to do it, he falls on the floor and does this. I'm like, what are you, are you playing dead? What are you doing? That's what a little kid does. These, these guys, they plug their ears, they run towards Stephen, they take him out of the court, and they begin to stone him. And what, is, what ensues next, I think, is amazing and powerful. Just like Jesus, Stephen turns the other cheek. As rocks begin to hit him in the head, the shoulders, the neck, his torso, Stephen drops to his knees 
and utters his last words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen died just like Jesus. Stephen died praying for his murderers. As rocks are starting to crush his skull and crush his body, he utters his last words were a prayer for God to forgive his murderers. We might ask the question in this moment, why would God, why would Jesus allow a Christian this early in the history of the church to be sacrificed in this way for his faith? Why would God do that? Our, the question we always ask with suffering is why? Why didn't Jesus do something? In the text it actually says that at one point Stephen looks up into heaven and sees a vision of Jesus. And you can imagine that the question on, on our minds might be, why didn't Jesus do something? I mean, he's there. He knows it's about to happen. Stephen sees a vision of Jesus in heaven. Why didn't Jesus do something? Jesus did do something. Jesus gave Stephen, in this moment, the power and the grace to forgive his murderers. Jesus, in this moment, gave Stephen the grace and the power to pray for his murders, murderers while he was being murdered. That's what Jesus did. So when, when we sit there and ask questions like, okay, why does God let this kind of suffering come to the, one of the first Christians? Why would he do this? What purpose would it serve? Why couldn't Jesus show up and be the hero and say, okay, I'm putting a stop to this. But as we'll see, Jesus had a bigger purpose in mind in this story. I want you to imagine, imagine if you were the one holding the rock, about to throw it at Stephen. And in that moment, you hear Stephen pray for you. In that moment, you hear Stephen say, Jesus, don't hold this sin against him. And as you're holding the rock, imagine how that would have affected you. Imagine how just seeing the person that you're murdering, praying for your salvation and your soul, imagine how that would have affected you powerfully. You would have nightmares about this person and their forgiveness for you. But we don't have to imagine, because there's someone that you know very well who's sitting right in this, in this story, in this situation. In verse 58, we hear about a man named Saul. Now you might say, well, who's that? Wasn't he like a king back in the Old Testament or something like that? You guys know him by the name Paul. This is before he's a Christian. And here he is at the scene, probably throwing stones at Stephen. And sees Stephen pray for him, and everyone else is there, and says, he later says in the book of Acts, that this story powerfully changed him, got a hold of him. And Christ would save him later on. We'll discuss the, life, the conversion of Paul in a couple of weeks. But Paul, at this point he was called Saul of Tarsus. Saul was there. He was the one throwing some of the rocks. Killing, murdering Stephen. 
And he was so profoundly impacted by Stephen's death. And later on, the road to Damascus, he's powerfully changed by Jesus. He probably laid awake at night, seeing Stephen's face, watching his lips move, praying that prayer, where Stephen asked God to forgive his murderers. Paul felt convicted by that. And what happened from this story onwards is, 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 is amazing, because we see, from this point of the book of Acts, we see this massive persecution just scatter the church. Other people start to get their lives for their faith. Christians are being persecuted in, in horribly tragic ways. And what happens is, the Christians start to scatter. But watch this, here's what happens. When Christians scatter, it's a chance for the gospel to advance. And so we see from this whole story that God uses suffering to advance the gospel. We see from the life and the death of Stephen that God uses suffering to advance his message. Because someone who gives their life for something, people talk about that person. And they don't just talk about that person, they talk about why they died. They talk about the cause. And over time, the cause becomes so much bigger than just the life and the death of Stephen. And so God uses suffering to advance the gospel. God uses Stephen's death to reach Paul and to scatter Christians so the gospel could spread. Now, as I'm reading this story this week, uh, I know when you guys read the Bible, and I'm in the same boat, we read the words on the page, and they don't seem to have life sometimes because we're, we're so used to reading the Bible. And so I began searching for a story that's more modern day that you might be able to connect with. And I think we forget that Bible stories are about real people. So here's a more recent story for you to think about. This next slide is a picture of a guy named Jim Elliott. You may not know who he is, but he was born in Oregon in 1927. So I said recent, but not too recent. Grew up in a Christian home. He professed Christ at the age of six. So if you're doing impact, don't ever question whether or not God saves children. Age of six, professed Christ. Became a good speaker in high school. Goes to college. Feels called to the mission field. After college, he feels called to go to a, a people group in Ecuador that were known as the Aka Indians, also known as the Quechua Indians. Their name, Aka, means savage. And that's what they basically were. These people would basically kill anyone they came in contact with. They, they killed missionaries for the last 400 years, up till the 20th century. They also killed off oil company employees as oil was needing to, um, to fuel the rest of the world's growth. Uh, they began moving in with, with trucks to start drilling holes for oil in their area. And they would kill oil company employees while they were asleep at night. So, so these, this, this tribe of people was just violent. They were known as savages. Nobody wanted to go near these people because of what they've, what they've heard about for the last 400 years of, their, of, of knowing about this, this tribe. So Jim Elliott, he feels called to go to this people group. One of the most violent groups that we knew about at the time. This next slide is a picture of him and his friends that also went with him. And so what they began to do is they set up, a, a, they set up an area where they could uh, fly a little plane 
over their um, over the encampment for the Aka Indians, they would drop gifts out of the plane to try to build a bridge to these people uh, relationally and get to know them. After several months and 13 gift drops, they decided to build a camp along the river a few miles down. They began to have a few positive encounters with some of the Aka Indians. They met one guy, uh, took him up in their plane. So they thought, hey, we're making progress. This is good. Really praying for God to change this Indian tribe. And so one day they decide, okay, we're going to actually enter into the village. And we're going to see if we can at least get to know them in that way and, and, and take the next step of getting to know this Aka uh, group of people. So they decide to enter the village. But the plan is interrupted by ten warriors who approach them before they have a chance to leave their camp. These warriors attack them, end up killing them all with spears and machetes. And these missionaries didn't even fight back. They decided beforehand that we're not going to fight back. Because if we fight back, they will see our purpose as just being like everyone else. If we fight back, the gospel may not take root after we die, so let's not fight back. So these guys basically knew it was the end for them, so they, they sacrificed themselves for the sake of the gospel. What happened after their deaths was amazing. When news reached the families of these men, the families did the unthinkable. Instead of just being mad and upset at this Indian group, the families moved to Ecuador to carry on the mission. Jim's wife, Jim Elliott, Jim's wife, his daughter, families of other victims, moved their lives to Ecuador to carry on the mission of the gospel. And what happened next was amazing. Many of those Indians came to Christ. Many came to Christ. And not only that, but they began sharing Christ with other tribes in their area. The next slide I, I think is the most powerful. Actually, go to the next slide there. This is the one of the pilots that was killed by the Indians. This is his daughter getting baptized by the men who killed her father. And so you see that when someone gives their life for the gospel... Even the people that are doing the murdering, if they see a forgiveness in that moment, it's powerful. These people were powerfully changed by the gospel and the forgiveness they saw in these families. And it's what let them see that Jesus, there's only one way that kind of forgiveness is possible, and it's because they know Jesus Christ. And we want to know him as well. That's what changed the Aka Indians. And so just like Stephen, the gospel was more important than their own lives. And we see here that sometimes God, God uses suffering to advance the gospel. You have three more questions to discuss. Once you guys discuss those, just pray for your tables and you'll be dismissed. After that, go ahead and discuss.